This audio recording is brought to you by BMA Theological Seminary. For more information on the BMA Theological Seminary, go to bmats.edu. I am delighted to be with you and am so grateful for the invitation to come and preach God's Word today. And I have to tell you that my heart has been so warmed because as a former seminary professor for several years, I feel the pain of your professors who know that you don't read the syllabus. And for Dr. Holmes to give you that kind and gentle reminder today just gave me all the feels. Read your syllabus and your Bible. And we're in Philippians chapter 1 today. And I want you to think for just a minute as we prepare to look at God's Word, who your heroes of the faith are. Who are those people that you look to? When you think of the people that you would like to emulate, when you think of the people that have really gone before you and set the standard, who are those that you think about? You go back to Scripture. Maybe you think of Moses. Maybe you think of Daniel. Maybe you think of the Apostle Paul. Or as you're going through church history, uh, one of my favorites is Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna from the 2nd century. Uh, such a great hero of the faith. Or maybe you go to the Protestant Reformation and you're thinking of Luther and, and Calvin and people like that. Or, or even think about the people today that you really look up to as believers. And think about the lives that these people have lived. Have the real heroes of the faith, the people that you look to as being strongest in their faith, have these people had the easiest lives? Are these the people that have just coasted through life without ever facing difficulty? Absolutely not. In fact, one of the reasons we look to these people is because they have faced great difficulty and yet they have persevered. They are these folks we've just heard about from the confession of faith who, who made it, even though at times God's face was clouded or obscured from their lives. They have persevered because the power of Christ and His saving power in their lives. These are people who have scars. Many of them have scars on their bodies, but they all had scars on their souls. Because the truth is, if you are walking with Jesus, if you are fulfilling the calling that He has placed on your life, you will receive scars. I want you to look with me again as we consider what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. I'll focus on verses 18 through 30 and then even narrow the focus a little bit more. The context here, as we just read, as we build up to chapter 18, is that Paul gets a report that some people are preaching Christ with false motives. Some are preaching out of envy. Some are preaching out of rivalry. They have these selfish desires and look what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Now, we need to be careful to remember that he's not just happy anytime someone preaches and uses the name of Christ. He's not happy just that any preaching is taking place, but he is able to rejoice even though he is in prison and hearing about his opponents or even trying to bring trouble upon him. And if they are preaching the true gospel, if they are really preaching Jesus Christ crucified and risen and ascended on high, then Paul rejoices because his priority is not his own life, not his own comfort, not his own ease, not the success of his ministry from outward appearances, but his priority is that the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed. He goes on to say, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope 
that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now he's expecting to be released. He's expecting this imprisonment is not going to be the end of him. And he was right at this point. This was not his final imprisonment that led to his death, but he is still not certain. And he says, but whether I live or die, Jesus will be honored in my body. Verse 21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to to depart and be with Christ. (laughs) That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If he lives, it's a good thing. If he dies, it's a good thing. If he lives, he continues to advance the gospel. If he dies, he gets to be with Jesus. He says, which which should I desire more? That's what he's talking about choosing. He's not contemplating suicide here. He's not saying, should I choose to go ahead and die or should I choose to live? He says, which should I choose to be my desire, my highest desire? I really want to be with Jesus, but there's work left to be done. And there is fruit left to be born. And now he encourages them. And it may not look like encouragement on the surface, but sometimes words of encouragement are the most difficult words that we need to hear. In verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, we see his passion to see the gospel proclaimed. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you see this word in verse 29? I don't want us to gloss over this. This is where I kind of want to camp out today. I want to camp out on this idea of granted. It is granted for the sake of Christ. It has been granted to you and me to believe in Christ. And for the sake of Christ, it has been granted for you and for me to suffer for Christ. Literally, it is a gift of the grace of God that you believe, and it is a gift of the grace of God that you suffer. I love talking on seminary campuses because I know a lot of you are studying the languages, and I get to talk about things I wouldn't dare take into the pulpit. But those of you who are studying the languages, if you're not, if you're studying for pastoral ministry, study the biblical languages. 
And let seminary be the beginning of your study of the, beginning of, of, of the biblical languages, not the culmination of your study of the biblical languages. And what we see is that this word for granted is the word for a gift. It is charizomai, where we get the same word grace, charis, grace. It is a gracious gift of God that has been given to you. This is, he has given this to you. What is the subject of this? It has been given to you. What has been given to you? Well, that's an aorist passive of charizomai, echaristhe. What has been given? Not only, not only to believe, it's, it's, it's granted, we already know that our faith comes from God, and it, the, the, the infinitive there, to believe, is the same as the infinitive to suffer. It is a present tense, which means this is something that is ongoing. Your faith in your salvation, and your faith to keep going, this is part of the perseverance of the saints. It's not in you. It's not enough just to say, hey, have faith. Our faith comes from the source, the fount of our faith, which is God Himself. He gives us the faith. It is His gift that we are able to believe and to continue to believe and to keep believing even through the difficult times. But it's not only the gift of God that we have faith. It is the gift of God that we suffer. I want to talk about why this is a gift in a minute. Okay, more than one minute. But first, I want to talk to you about how you will you will get scars. This is not exhaustive, but I will give you three categories of suffering. There's general suffering. There's a sense in which all suffering as Christians is suffering for the sake of Christ. Think of it this way. I want you to consider two, two patients in a chemotherapy clinic. One is a Christian, one is not a Christian. They're both suffering equally. And the non-Christian might or might not have a positive attitude, but the Christian is intentional. The Christian goes in for chemotherapy treatment with the attitude and the purpose that this is for the glory of God. This is for the sake of Christ and endures that horrible... There are probably some in this room that have endured that, or at least you've seen loved ones endure that. And they endure it for the sake of Christ, giving honor to God, giving praise to God, not making light of it, certainly. But they have a faith, a witness, there's a, a contentment. So one person there suffers without any purpose to their suffering. There's no ultimate goal and end other than healing from cancer, and then what? But another is they're suffering for the sake of Christ. Seeing this as the opportunity to, to glorify Him in the body, whether through life or through death. So there is the sense that general suffering for the Christian is suffering for the sake of Christ. But I want to use the time that I have here to address the seminary community today. Specifically those of you who are currently in ministry or are preparing for some kind of ministry. There is the reality of Christian persecution. Some of you in this room might face imprisonment, even death. I have a son who was on a mission trip in a foreign country was arrested for preaching the gospel. Now, it sounds worse than it is. He was detained for a couple of days and released, but that is a very real possibility. We know that we have missionaries who are occasionally detained. I just came back the last two weeks. I was in a foreign country, and a foreign country where I was teaching seminary classes in underground settings, and it was illegal for me to be doing that, and, and I faced the possibility of being detained. They would have just sent me home, but there are people there facing that possibility every day of their lives. We have missionaries serving in countries like this who are at great risk, in fact, it's not uncommon for us to have missionaries who are martyred for their faith. For some of you, that might happen. That may be a reality. 
You may go to the mission field. You may be put in some sort of environment where you will lose your life for the sake of the gospel. But what about here? What about in America where most of us serve? It's also possible to be persecuted here. But can I address what persecution is not? Persecution is not the general hostility that we face from unbelievers and that we see in the media and in the movies where they make fun of Christians. You're not, being, you're not losing anything because of that. That's just the way it is. Persecution is not that marginalization that we are facing in society. Persecution is not removing crosses from buildings or Ten Commandments from courthouses. It is not the prohibiting of allowing prayers in Jesus' name at football games. It is not the local business saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. You're not suffering because someone says happy holidays to you. In fact, the country I was just in, someone actually said to me, is it true that you Americans think you're suffering for Christ? That's funny. Wow. That's funny. This believer said, perhaps you should suffer for Christ and you would experience the presence of God like we're experiencing. Whoa. Persecution is also not what comes to you from being foolish or sinful. Sometimes that's the good hand of God disciplining you. I also had a friend one time, he was a, uh, he just desired persecution. He longed to be persecution. So he intentionally put him himself, himself in situations where people would, would even resort to bodily contact with him so that he could say, oh, I've been persecuted. Like for example, he was told to stay off a certain neighbor's property. He had been told repeatedly to stay off his property, but he decided to stand on his front porch and preach the gospel at his house until the guy came off out and physically removed him from his property. By the way, I would have probably done the same. I don't need somebody yelling right in my front porch. But he was persecuted. No, that's not persecution. But the truth is, in America, you can face persecution. You might be targeted, maybe not so much in East Texas, but in other places that you're going to serve. I have read of of those in ministry being vandalized. I've read of drive-by shootings. Uh, I've seen my daughter verbally assaulted in our neighborhood, again, not in East Texas, but in another city we lived. And we know that it was because of who her daddy is. Your family might disown you. You might be threatened. I have certainly received threatening phone calls and threatening letters and emails. I even had somebody one time send me photographs of severed body parts. I actually called the police on that one. You might endure some real hostility. But where I would spend most of my time today is talking about the suffering that comes from your vocational calling. Many of your scars, maybe most of your scars, will come through and as a result of your ministry setting. I have a friend who's a retired pastor. His name is Joe McKeever and uh, just, a, just a delightful individual who pastored for many, many years and then served as a director of missions of a Baptist association in a major city. And uh, he writes prolifically, and one of the things that he wrote a while back is this, if you are looking for a carefree career, one with pleasant working conditions, smooth and supportive relationships, and constant rewards, the ministry is not for you, friend. He, he, he claims there are two situations in which pastors don't suffer. One is if your church is dead. If your church is dead, nobody really cares, right? And second is if you're in denial. 
few years ago, the Francis A. Schaeffer Center for Church Leadership Development surveyed 1,050 Reformed and Evangelical pastors. This is our camp, all right? This is us, Reformed Evangelical pastors. They found out that 78% of them had been forced to resign at least one time and 63% at least two times. Do you know what this means? This means that those of you who are serving as a pastor, most of you will be fired at least once. In fact, most of you will be fired at least twice. It is not unusual for you to be forced out of a ministry position. It is unusual for you not to be forced out of a ministry position. Sometimes it's your fault, though. I mean, maybe there's immorality. Maybe there's bad leadership. Maybe there's poor job performance. I have had to terminate people on staff before. I do that as a last result, but I have had to do that. But many times it's unjust. We live in a church culture that will see you as nothing more as a hired hand. You're an employee. We hired you to do our bidding. You don't do our bidding exactly the way we want you to do our bidding. You're out the door and we'll move right on and collect resumes again. That is a reality that we faced and frequently you will have some unrealistic expectations placed on your life. Let me don't say frequently. You will always have unrealistic expectations placed on your life by some of those to whom you are ministering. This is real. It's universal. But there is also, there is also, I don't just want you to think of the suffering you're going to endure like that, but there is the inward suffering that scars the soul. We all know, if we are honest, and I hope you do know this, that the call to serve in any kind of ministry for the gospel of Jesus Christ is hard work. Now, I'll tell you this, physically, we don't work harder than a lot of people. I've got, I've got people in my church who work, work longer hours than I do. Boy, I've got people in my church who certainly work physically harder than I do. But we will carry burdens that most people know nothing about. And listen, they shouldn't know. If you're a pastor, don't stand up in your pulpit and talk about all the burdens you carry. Number one, nobody's going to understand it. Number two, they're not going to care. Keep that between you and Jesus and your spouse and maybe a couple of close friends. Think about Paul's ambition, though. What was Paul's ambition? When Paul talks about his ambition in ministry, he, he talked about one day standing before God and giving an account. And he wanted to be able to present the people that he had led to the Lord, the people that he had ministered to, he wanted to be able to present them before the Lord as holy and blameless in his sight. His ambition was not a bigger paycheck, a nicer car, a bigger church. His ambition was the spiritual health and maturity of the people under his charge. We are aware that we are accountable for the spiritual lives of our flocks, and we will get frustrated if they're not growing. If you have not learned that yet, you will. You will preach and teach and preach and teach and be as true to doctrine and as true to the gospel as you can and try to honor God. And after years and years, you'll have people that have said under your preaching, said under your teaching, spout the craziest doctrine you've ever heard. And you'll say, you want to say, where did you get that? You will get ready to preach the funeral of a faithful deacon who has sent her to your preaching for years. He will look at you and say, well, she's got her wings now, right, Pastor? And you will face the temptation not to say, What? 
You will get frustrated by that. You'll get frustrated by the things that they do. And you say, what are you thinking? Because we're to give an account for them. We don't just get frustrated because they're an annoyance. We get frustrated because we know that they're in our charge. And the spiritual burden that we carry when our people hurt tears at our souls. And you need to understand it will be more than you can bear alone. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you. Now, what do you put a yoke on an animal for? Do you put the yoke on before you put it to bed at night? You put the yoke on to go out in the field and work. He says, you come work with me. The thing is, he says, his burden is light. The burden will be way far beyond what you can carry. You need to know that. And if you aren't on your face daily before God, it will crush you. You will experience things you never thought you would experience. Maybe you'll experience some of the things that I've experienced. I could go on for days talking about them, but a few... Maybe you will experience walking into a hospital room where a man is sitting holding his dead child who just died in his arms. And he will look to you and say, Pastor, why? And he's looking for you to speak truth and he's looking for you to give comfort and you have to be the strong one. And you want to just break down and cry your eyes out but you have to wait till you get your car in the parking lot before you can fall apart because he needs you and it's a burden you can't carry alone. It will tear you. Perhaps you will go to a house after you get a phone call from a frantic wife whose husband has walked out the door in a, in a fit of rage and just craziness and she doesn't know what's going to happen and you get there and you find out he's been talking about suicide and his eight-year-old daughter looks up at you and says, are you going to save my daddy, Pastor Mike? How can I possibly carry that? You will sit in a room with a man whose wife has just left him for another man as he is crying like a little girl because his whole world has come tumbling down around him. Maybe you, <laughs> maybe you will start getting text messages early in the morning from church members saying, have you seen the news? And you will pull up the news and right there on the front picture, on the front page is a picture of a church member who's just been arrested for murder. And you'll go to the jail and you will sit looking at this person who says, I don't know what happened. Let me tell you a real reality of today's pastoral ministry. You will hear story after story after story after story, after story of rape and molestation. And the cuts that these people inflict on themselves with razor blades will cut your very heart. You will know how many of those perfect, godly, exemplary families in your church are actually living train wrecks. 
you will try to get help for the teenager who's suicidal, but whose mom says, oh, she just wants attention. You will know, you will know, and have to keep to yourself secret addictions and temptations and sins of these people that you look out on week after week after week. When you are in the ministry of Jesus Christ, you will walk through un told suffering with people and you are the one person in the room who is expected to be strong and wise. At any given time you'll be dealing with dozens of these things all together and you not only carry the pain but you write sermons and lead meetings and field complaints and put out fires and respond to temptations and crises and minister to your spouse and your children. If you are doing your job as one called to ministry, your soul will take beating after beating after beating. And this is God's good and gracious gift to you. It's a gift. It's been given to you graciously by God Not only that you have faith, not only that you have faith to be saved, not only that you have faith to persevere, but that you will suffer for His sake. In fact, for His sake is mentioned twice. Is it not in verse 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ? And then it's like He's emphasizing, He's driving it home, that you will suffer for His sake. In the Greek, it's the same construction. Huper Christu and huper autu. It's a gift. Why is it a gift? Paul tells us in verse 28 why it's a gift. This is a clear sign to them, he says, of their destruction, but of your salvation. Standing firm under suffering is a sign of your salvation. We think about the heroes of the faith, those who have endured the suffering, who have kept their faith intact. Why do we look to them? Because it is a clear indication. It is the evidence that they were the real deal, and it will be for you too. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said he wanted to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. We all like that, right? I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of His resurrection. He says, and to share in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. We follow a Savior. We have trusted a Savior who has scars. Scars on His back, scars on His hands, scars in His side, scars on His forehead. Bloody and bruised and beaten. He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. He was crushed. It was the Lord's will to put Him to shame. And if Jesus has scars, his followers will have scars too. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We identify Jesus the most when we suffer for his sake and we should consider it strange if we don't. I know you're saying, I thought you were trying to encourage us today. (laughs) Believe it or not, I am. 
I'm trying to encourage you by giving you the reality of the situation and by telling you that it is a good and gracious gift of God. I'm trying to encourage you by telling you that this is confirmation for you of who you are in Christ and what you're doing in Christ. If you are walking with Jesus, you will have scars, but I would encourage you, don't be afraid, don't be shocked, don't be surprised. Stand firm, stay on your face before Him. Stay in the Word and do your job. And then rejoice. Rejoice that you have scars. Because those scars confirm your salvation. And those scars affirm your calling. So yeah, be encouraged. That you have the high and holy privilege to being able to follow Christ. Into His suffering. Becoming like Him. Becoming like Him. Becoming like Him. Even in His death. It's a good gift that He's given to us. Let us embrace the calling. Embrace the faith. And embrace the suffering. Let me pray for you. Holy Father, I want to pray for these here who are serving in some sort of ministry for you, those who may not be serving yet, who are training, preparing. Father, help us to see that the suffering that you have called us to is good for us and glorifies you. It's a gift to us, and it happens for your sake. Father, I pray for them that they would embrace the calling, that they would embrace the suffering, that they would embrace the scars, and that we would rejoice knowing that the good gift is also the faith to believe, to endure, to persevere, so that one day, one day, we might hear, well done. Well done, servant. Well done, son. Well done, daughter. Now enter in to the glory of the King. God, it is for His sake and in His name, the name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen.